We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money and while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that it really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our our goal, that's what we are doing this for, but we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two you know that is that is how i was trained honestly and um, i I, am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where i um i just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time wasting my time um because i believed the surgeon's motto you know heal with steel or you know when in doubt cut it out and some of those uh (laughs) 
things uh, we use to just uh, it, it, it's it it's not all uh, for the patient. We we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency too, maybe? Uh, and I know the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe within some within the medical community that, you know, why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure? I'm the doctor. I'm in charge. I'm handling this, almost sounding as if at a level maybe, while not uh, openly recognized, almost a subconscious sense of, well, I'm not going to bring God into this equation because in my operating room, I am God? You know, that is, that is um, I think, very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted to I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And, um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery, and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think, we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but... Um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and <laughs> what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair and um my dentist I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine and you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could uh but I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, do yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual, I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. 
And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's, as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why, why am I not at least asking them, not pushing it on them? But I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist office, where it was just just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point, and. Um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I you know say okay I'll have to pray another day, and I I back up to the nurses station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided you know what I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so you know how we do. We pretend to I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, ah. and, you know. <laughs> So I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turned right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm. 
and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes handing them out, and I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before, because I, the, the patient's looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life, I had said, look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God. But I would be willing to talk to him with you, if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I've certainly uh, been guilty of that for many years, and so there's something about, um, as as we give glory to God, there it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his, in the brain. He had a, a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back. And so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health. And I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's an enormous man. He's this uh, Marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools. And so I'm starting to roll away from him, (laughs) rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me, I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And he said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my, uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would, uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I, I stood up, and I said, come on, Mom, let's get out of here. And she said, no, I'm not leaving. I've hated her. He said, I've hated her since that time. And I've, um, in 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. 
I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Hmm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family. Because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians, or even as friends, um, you know, we can, we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's, let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the, uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too. Mm. It, it has, yes. I, I've, I've certainly, um, obviously, I have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to... Um, you know, I actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to, to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's, it's, a, it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so, yeah, my, my life has changed, and I think, I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and in impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as, as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, 
particularly in terms of a, uh, a diagnosis of clinical depression, where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a, a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with? What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and, I think, ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. That and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, uh, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very uh, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non-traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, and started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays. And uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Ashelman, and we began doing comedy together. And then and started working on biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Um, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out a character from the inside out. How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you make this, what it would, from an outsider, it would appear to be this 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a uh, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, a, a poke fun at it, rather, yeah. but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. Well, I think at one level, it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. Initially. I guess not. Huh? Uh, and my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years. As uh, Anyone who, who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of, of struggling to uh, to make 
make ends meet in that direction too. I, I think I've come to the conclusion that it makes an awful lot of sense um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we're supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment. Uh, you, you have empathy. Uh, you care about another person. That's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage. And it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it easier to to see other perspectives too? And I asked that question, Ted, because let's face it: when you're when you're an actor, you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not, and you are attempting yeah, you, to convince yeah. the audience that you you are this person whom you're not really. Yeah. And when absolutely. you get into that position, does it allow you to see things from a different perspective? Is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say, no, this full time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church? No, that's not exactly what I'm called to do. <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor, uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person. Uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside. And and that is why we connect to people that, that we feel like are good actors, because we can feel them being completely honest. So to uh, be completely... To be to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Uh, you you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yeah. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing, to to be thoroughly convincing. And I'm wondering, did did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense out of um, the 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 horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that um, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure uh, an empathetic person will be drawn, I think, to, to, to acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's, you know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together. They know that there's certain tensions on, on, what, on what, what that means. And um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business, and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well, um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you, need, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spent more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. So um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. 
Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You, you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to, life has to be lived and, um, everything can't stop around, um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run, his wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that, that's very much the case, uh, that it was helpful. But I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that. And um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level. I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. Um, it. There's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that that made. Um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt uh, after Lee's death and, and uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times. I said, uh, I, "I know what this feels like to 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 try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse." Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to to what Lee would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do it, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because it's a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to get myself motivated. Uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a, a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to an, uh, one extreme uh, to, to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation today is with Mennonite actor Ted Schwartz. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space, a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. This journey from studying to become a full-time pastor to discovering the, the arts and then moving in a ministry direction that way, and then the diagnosis that we mentioned earlier of your partner, Lee, struggling with a clinical diagnosis of of depression to the point of being bipolar. We talked earlier, Lee, about uh, folks being depressed around the holidays, and that certainly can be a challenge. But Lee's, uh, Lee's disease went much deeper than that, didn't it? 
Yes, it did. It was it was the kind that. Um, well, I describe it at one time. Just it's the uh, it's the constant companion. It's the monster that hides not just under the bed but around every corner. It's it's part of uh, part of every day. It's part of um, it's. I, I call it sometimes the demon that sits on the shoulder and whispers in your ear. Mm. Um, it, it, it's hard to um, it's hard to really articulate some of the issues that, that we seem to to deal with. Medication is an important part of anybody's treatment, medication and therapy. Um, but that can uh, most of those have uh, at least at some level um, medication. I mean, side effects that affect also uh, who you are as a person, and and it. Uh, it can be frustrating because you don't think you you are who you uh, are at the core of your being. Um, for some, it, it becomes um, uh, a spiritual dilemma, and um, I really don't think it, it, it should be. Um, people cast themselves in, 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 in being distanced from God because they have this particular illness, and, it, and I think it's a, uh, it's a horrific um I'm not sure I'd call it a mistake, a misnomer about about what it is. How um, how did you f- discover? How did you first find out about Lee's passing? Well, it, in, in many in many cases, apparently, uh, in young men in their early uh, early to mid twenties, it can it can uh, surface. Um, so I met Lee when he was 23, and uh, so there were certain certain hints of it before that. And uh, I was in full time school, uh, in uh, finishing college, and then going into seminary. So I had a certain amount of of um, life that I was doing there with a family of three boys, um, uh, very young, four, four, two, and six months when I started school. Uh, so I and my wife were, were really engrossed in that. So it wasn't until Lee and I began uh, to do a bit more work together and started seeing each other as, as, as friends and friends of the family. He was still single at the time. So it was within two years that it started to surface. And um, um, I mean, everybody has points where they're despondent. Um, but they usually see that there's, uh, oftentimes we can see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we, we help, we talk to people, we we talk to pastors or we talk to friends, we talk to counselors, you get professional help and you can find your way through it. Uh, for me, it just seemed to be uh, uh, something that, that with yo-yo, the manic, manic parts were, were exhilarating and scary at the same time because he was tremendously creative. Uh, he, was a, he was a visual artist and he was a, a wonderful actor at the same time. So he'd be wonderfully creative at those times. Um, I think uh, a 20 to 30 year uh, struggle with this um, can wear you down. Um, so where that the highs are no longer very high, uh, but the lows continue to be low. Um, uh, that's what I, I felt like I've experienced with Lee. And, um, it, 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 at the point where he, he had taken his life, it didn't feel like it was too in my mind, tremendously different than any other events over the previous 10 to 15 years. And, you know, we often hear that, that yeah. we look at these the circumstances immediately surrounding a person's decision to take their own life. Yeah. And you say, well, you know, the day before, the day yeah. of, they, I saw them that morning. They seemed to be quite normal. Yeah, a couple of things had happened the day before that might have added a bit to the stress, but didn't seem That's to be right. anything over the the top, anything extraordinary. But you mentioned yeah. something, uh, and uh, maybe it was just in, in quick passing, but I think profound observation. 
Ted, and that is the idea that this tends to wear you down after a time, that this is not a single event, but layer upon layer upon layer. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. We we had attended a concert the night before, uh, about two hours away, with another mutual friend. and had a wonderful time. It was guys' night out. We we had a, a great time, and then the next that morning uh, we set up for a show. We were due to do two performances locally, Friday and Saturday night, and we set up on Thursday morning. Um, so all of those things seemed very familiar. Um, there was, I, I knew he was agitated, or, or I should say, he was he was uh, anxious. Um, that that didn't seem to be anything tremendously different, and um, you know, in in. In almost 20 years on the road, we missed um, one show for a snowstorm and um, a second half of a show because I fell and, and uh, con- contuted my arm uh, on the edge of the stage. But in 20 years, that's the only shows we've ever missed. So it never entered my mind that we would miss a show mm. um, for this particular reason. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Uh, With us today is actor Ted Schwartz. A look at his book, Laughter is Sacred Space. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues.